Welcome to Terrograms. Hi, I'm Craig Verzone and I'll be your host for the sixth delivery of Terrograms. Today we are joined by Michael Ferguson at the University of Virginia School of Architecture. Michael Ferguson is a registered landscape architect with a practice in Alexandria, Virginia and holds this year's Thomas Jefferson Memorial Foundation Professorship in Architecture at the University of Virginia. It is a bit of a homecoming for Michael for he was trained here at the UVA as both an architect and a landscape architect. In 1980, Michael won the Rome Prize in Landscape Architecture. Then after returning to the United States in seven years of practice with EDAW, he launched his own office, Michael Ferguson Arch Architects, in 1987. In 2005, Michael was named a fellow in the American Society of Landscape Architects. We're very pleased that you could take the time to join us. Welcome to Terrograms, Michael. Mm, pleased to be here. You were a, vis a visitor this semester at the UVA. You came in, gave a few wonderful small lectures and seminars, participated as a critic on reviews, and took quite a bit of time to talk to the students. Tell us a little bit about your experience. Yeah, well, in a way, the experience, uh, I mean, I can look at it from two perspectives, or I can look at it from my own perspective, and then I can conjecture on it maybe uh, from others. Uh, from my own perspective, actually, it's been a little bit uh, retrospective because uh, the structure of uh, the time here got set up for me, but I certainly embraced it because uh, I do enjoy uh, drawing, and that uh, was kind of structured as the the uh, focus uh, of my time here. And what that uh, allowed me to do or encouraged me to do was actually go back and uh, look over a much broader span of uh, what I've done in the past, at least because I structured the idea of uh, talking about drawing through looking at my own and uh, both refreshing my memory of what I do and why I do it uh, and, and using those as examples. So it, it was actually uh, kind of fun because it, it did uh, have me go back and look at what I've done over, uh, over, uh, over my career. It, it did allow me to see that I don't draw as much as I used to, that I don't draw on paper as much as I used to. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not sure I would conclude that that uh, is bad yet, but it certainly is a trend that uh, that going back and looking over past work uh, uh, allowed me to see that I don't think I, I'm not sure I had seen before. Mm -hmm. What is it about the drawing or your relationship with drawing that you tried to show or re reveal to the students? Uh, the degree to which drawing and thinking are uh, simultaneous efforts and the degree to which drawing actually facilitates thinking for me and, and actually we were talking about it with uh, students yesterday uh, uh, the importance of getting to the point where drawing becomes so second nature that, uh, that there is no attention uh, mental attention to the process of drawing but all of the attention goes to the process of thinking and for me certainly then uh, you know I I find often my hand leads my mind or is a little bit ahead of my mind in, in, in surfacing ideas that uh, appear to me on paper before they uh, occur to me in my head. So um, it is that interval mm -hmm. process of thinking and drawing that, that, that I tried to focus on uh, with some subsets of that. It talked a good bit about travel uh, and its relationship to drawing or the degree to which 
drawing in conjunction with travel, seeing things and recording uh, them and your reactions to them actually uh, not only uh, increases the kind of acuity of the observations, but actually intensifies the, uh, the experience, because I think drawing things actually does open up other senses. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it does lock things in your mind better than, certainly better than taking a photograph and better mm -hmm. than just standing and looking at a place. It's mm -hmm. interactive and it is effort, and that effort you expend, I think, uh, has returns mm -hmm. in, in uh, what you uh, gain from it. Aside from traveling, are there any other stimulants or habits that you've developed to facilitate your drawing? Yeah, I, I, well, I can think of at least one, and, and uh, there probably are others that may come up. Although the first one, I would say that you know, the stimulant to the habit is the habit itself; that it's a self-perpetuating mm -hmm. thing. Uh, I think it's true with almost everyone. It's certainly true with me that uh, the, the more I draw, the more I draw. The, when I'm in, uh, and I do ebb and flow with it, and more now than in the past, and probably going back to that issue of retrospective, I, I would suspect if I looked at it, I would find that my drawing, uh, the frequency of it, uh, maybe the quality of it too, I'm not sure about that, but the frequency of it was at a more constant high level, whereas now it ebbs and flows more, and when it ebbs and flows, there's no doubt but that it uh, reveals the degree to which when I'm in a drawing phase, it supports itself, it promotes itself. So I think the habit itself is probably its best, uh, the best way to, mm -hmm. to uh, sustain it uh, is to do it. Um, beyond that, uh, for me, certainly carrying a sketchbook, uh, something that I did get into the habit of, and yeah, I mean now that is second nature, but it is certainly uh, having something that allows you to do it when you have the opportunity or inspiration to do it. And for me, now I spend so much time out of the office that, uh, and that's been for a long time, that, that as much, or even the majority of the drawing that I do is in notebook form away from the office as part of travel or even in the evenings more there than when I sit than when I'm in the office because my time to draw in the office is not not mm -hmm. very rich anymore well it's interesting to note that um, Beth Meyer likened your drawing more to uh, Lori Olin's and she said that you were better than Dan Kiley Beth is prone to hyperbole <laughs> You've had a chance to sit on a couple of reviews this week. Do you see that drawing is being emphasized enough? Uh, you mean here in school? Mm -hmm. uh, yes, I think so. I mean, what I saw that surprised me, I, I really expected to, if anything, see some resistance to it or at least skepticism of it uh, because of the expansion of all the other media, particularly di digital uh, of late that certainly offer legitimate skepticism about what the role of drawing is now and what it will be in the future. So I expected a, um, a higher level of skepticism, uh, far more than I saw. And what surprised me is uh, the degree to which I saw a good deal of enthusiasm and interest in it. And I could see, and also, I mean, I was told by people here that, that 
they have heard it as well. So I think it's not just my uh, reaction or observation there. And that came as a surprise. I really didn't expect uh, the interest in it. And, and do I see enough of it was your question. Uh, actually, the answer there is probably no. I still see that there is uh, a quick kind of default when someone experiences a level of discomfort with the process of drawing or the product that comes from it. I think that there's a quick default default to digital because there's some uh, level of feeling of finish and polish and uh, expectation that's more easily achieved there, especially when a deadline's involved. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a hard time to decide to start drawing. Mm -hmm. It's really got to be uh, become an integral part, integral part of uh, one's process uh, throughout, and that would go back to the idea of uh, drawing and thinking. Uh, the degree to which it facilitates thinking means that it's an integral part of the process mm -hmm. from the beginning, uh, not uh, a piece that's thought of as a way to conclude mm -hmm. a thought uh, at the end when there's always time pressure and then it's even more difficult. In your office, how do you encourage your, your colleagues to draw? Well, I probably encourage it by demanding it. Uh, I mean, uh, are they still using pencils and main lines, or are there some of them also also have a monitor in front? Well, the side. Oh, everybody has a monitor, and and um, to say that I demand it is uh, is an overstatement. I, I actually I don't demand a lot in the office, but I think anybody that comes to my office knows uh, that I would expect it. Uh, but nobody works without a terminal and a computer, and I don't think, uh, uh, I doubt I'll ever see that situation again. And I'm trying to think, when is the last time I saw a Mayline get used? Uh, it, it's been a good while, and when I think of half the people in my office probably don't, do not have a Mayline on, mounted on their mm -hmm. tables, which maybe is, a, is my shortcoming that I've allowed that to be the case. And those that do, I can think of the May lines probably being rusted in place. Um, I don't use my May line much anymore. Uh, the, to the extent that I push drawing, it probably is more freehand than technical drawing, and it's not been over maybe four or five years. We rarely produce final document, I mean, we never produce final documentation mm -hmm. by uh, technical drawing, hand drawings anymore. I can take that back. We do some residential work where we might mm -hmm. do that, but but we may not even use a May line on the residential work. It may become entirely, the, if, if we do a construction document set, which might be more of a kind of builder's document set, it may well be freehand mm -hmm. in all of its graphic form. Um, so yes, the main line, I can see it disappearing. How far up have you pushed the technology in the process? Is it being used in the schematic design? You mean digital? Digital technology. Is, yeah. it, is it being used in the schematic design or is that uh, relegated mostly to drawing and then as the project becomes more a set of construction documents, it becomes more digital? Well, the, the, the latter is true uh, for sure. Uh, as we move deeper into the process, more of the products become digital, uh, but uh, digital work 
starts, I don't think we start any projects. We, we don't go very far into any work uh, before it becomes digital in some form. And certainly it is a clear progression where CAD documents are starting earlier and earlier. And I would say typically now even at schematic, before mm -hmm. we finish schematic, we're in CAD drawings for some uh, layer of mm -hmm. the thinking. It's not the majority and certainly not the only form of drawing we would finish a schematic uh, phase with. But now, most cases, we would start a project with CAD bases uh, that we use uh, to work uh, freehand with, yeah, in conjunction, and, and then Photoshop and a variety of programs where we would supplement. And we do, actually, we have now three, maybe four touchscreens in the office. Most of our computers are touchscreen mm -hmm. now. So that, although, you know, people coming out of school be, seem to feel as comfortable with the mouse as they do with the stylus. For me, the, the conversion to digital um, is entirely through the touchscreen, mm -hmm. uh, where I can combine freehand drawing with digital processes. Uh, and I try to encourage them to start doing that because I do find a world of difference, although I, I, I cannot insist that that it, you know, I, I think you can do almost anything with a mouse that you can do with a stylus or a pen on a touchscreen. But I don't, I, but I haven't seen anybody produce drawings like I can do freehand on a screen mm -hmm. uh, with a mouse, although I, I mean I have lots of people who can, you know, turn, draw circles around me with a mouse. Mm -hmm. If I pick up a mouse, I just find the disconnect one more mm -hmm. distancing from the, the, the thinking and the drawing. So it puts me back probably at a place where uh, it's like I'm starting to draw again with the mouse, mm -hmm. but we do. Uh, most people have touch screens now, even if they're not using them with the stylus. How is your office structured? Well, it's it's nine or ten, and, and it's not structured enough. Uh, it, it's <laughs> a, a highly organic um, structure if there is one, and that needs to change. Um, my practice has evolved fairly rapidly uh, or changed. Uh, I guess it's evolving. It certainly is changing. Uh, recently, uh, the, until five years ago, four, uh, three years ago, excuse me, um, I uh, had no more than five employees, and that was a fairly static number over quite a few years preceding that. And that was governed by the place I was in. I was, I set up my practice in a detached garage on my property mm -hmm. and. 1987, with the idea that uh, it was interim space until I went out and found uh, uh, a legitimate office. And I quickly found when I went out looking for legitimate office space that nothing came even close to the appeal that I quickly recognized existed in the circumstance I had in the detached garage. Uh, because it was an office setting a few steps away from the house where there was some physical separation from the house, but the convenience, the immediacy of it, uh, the garden setting, uh, the comfort, um, and I would say the inspiration of it. Uh, you know, I used to talk a little bit about the texture of a practice and how you define that and how its definition then governs what you do and how you do it. and that really was the kind of defining texture of the practice. It was a small practice that was immediate, that was close by, that was set in a garden, 
and that was a wonderful antidote to the rigors of work. I mean, I love work, but work is hard at times. And I used to say, and I still believe that, you know, that garden setting uh, was the perfect antidote to that, where we're surrounded by the materials that we work with. And I can't say that, you know, we maybe we didn't take enough advantage of that, but maybe not literally, but I think subconsciously just being surrounded by, you know, plants and water and earth and stone and the things we're working with is is a wonderful way to work where um, you're immersed in those things. And this was a, a wonderful one-car garage. Actually, I used to kid that I could have quite a practice if I had a two-car garage, <laughs> but the one-car garage was wonderful because it had a set of bi-folding doors that when it opened up, the there was no separation from inside and out, and the practice spilled outside, and we spilled outside, and it was a very, very, and you you went outside, you know, the, if you wanted something copied, you had to go someplace else, so there was this constant indoor outdoor all year long even if the weather wasn't good and and that I find wonderfully healthy and uh, energizing and I gave up that uh, three years ago um, got an office which also eliminated this wonderful and terrible governor that I always had which was the physical size of that place set mm -hmm. absolute limits, and, and we were at the absolute limits. I mean, we had five people in there, which was fine until somebody stood up. Uh, and if two people stood up at the same time, sure. it, it really started becoming dysfunctional. But uh, there were wonderful things about it. Uh, the have governing. You able, have you been able to re replace that that missing component in no, your new I'm, office? No, I mean, the, I think that there are other things about it that. Uh, that offset it. Uh, and the first, and I kind of said it kiddingly when we first uh, got in there, uh, but I, I think that there is some truth to it. Uh, the difference is we went from, you know, I don't know what our square footage per person was, but it was below any acceptable standards <laughs> in any part of the world. Uh, and we went from that to something that probably increased it tenfold. Our reception area now is about the size of the garage where we all sat. <laughs> before and so I said kiddingly that all of a sudden the availability of horizontal space should improve the quality and expansiveness and scale of our thinking significantly because just the ability to roll out a big drawing was a problem in the former office. Now we have a wonderful wealth of horizontal flat space to, to, mm -hmm. to, to, to work on uh, to roll things out on so I said kiddingly but I think in some ways it, 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 it is helpful uh, we're in a, a wonderful or, you know, town-like setting outside of Washington in Old Town, Alexandria, uh, that certainly uh, you know, is a vibrant, wonderful, one floor up above a retail shop in a very, very nicely renovated, uh, spacious but also light-filled mm -hmm. uh, studio-like space. So it, it, you know, it's as good as it could be. I said at one time I'd never get off the ground. I mean, I would not have an office that wasn't connected to the ground and and to a garden. But but uh, but I've had a pivotal change in my life, which we'll probably get back to, and that's the birth of triplets three years ago mm -hmm. that that uh, instigated uh, mm -hmm. this and a number of other changes. So it's no uh, small catalyst. 
Yes, no, it's a big one. So, so now I'm uh, three blocks from work. I mean, I live three blocks from work, and, and so I reconstructed in a way the circumstance I had at one time where I walked outside the door uh, to to the office. Now I walk down the block to the office, and that's you know a wonderful circumstance. Mm-hmm. And we're in the middle of a vibrant town. It's it's a great pleasure to be in. So some offsetting aspects, but but what we did lose is, is I think, that idea of a texture that defines the practice and the kind of uh, uh, antidote of, mm-hmm. uh, of a deep garden setting. We have a little little outside garden now, but, but it's small by comparison. When you were working at EDA, how many people were in the office? Uh, I have to think a second. When I started, uh, there were probably 20 Five, and when I left, there were probably 50. And actually, it reminds me, I didn't quite finish the, 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 the question, your last question, and it rolled, the two certainly are rolled together. Uh, movement to Old Town, um, remove that governor of hiring, which was always a problem because we always turned down a lot of work, and that was a very painful piece. I mean, everybody says, well, I want a wonderful situation to be into turn down work, and it is, but it's also uh, kind of painful. It, 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 it uh, tires me out mm-hmm. turning down work. Um, the organic structure of the office, which was your original question, worked with five uh, easily. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that was part of this idea of texture, my interest in maintaining absolute simplicity. Uh, in the structure of my office so that I could work on projects and not work on running an office. And uh, uh, now nine and ten, a structure is evolving, uh, but uh, it, it, it takes a little more structure to the office to, to, to run it. And certainly I saw changes in EDOF from uh, 25 to 50, and I think there are certain thresholds, and I think 10 is about one threshold, I think 25 is about another threshold where uh, management uh, and business structures need to change. And uh, So I never focused on it too much, but a good bit of change during that relatively, although I was at EDOF seven years, uh, small change compared to, I'm trying to remember and I'm not sure I know what was the corporate uh, employee count when I left EDAW. My guess would be in the 200 to 50 wow. range, and I believe EDAW is around 2000 now. Um, so exponential uh, growth there. Uh, Good bit of growth while I was there, and almost exponential since I left. Was it an easy break to leave EDA and start your own office, or did it seem completely natural? Uh, not easy, for sure, but inevitable, for sure, because uh, I got to the point where I realized that I simply had lost the uh, energy uh, to work. And uh, I mean, EDA was great, and the, the hard part of it was a break in. Uh, very strong bonds there, because mm-hmm. uh, when I, you know, when I realized that and and told them their suggestion was was great, uh, they said, "Why don't you take a sabbatical?" So they they gave me a, a good sabbatical, uh, and I thought, uh, you know, I, I always did travel a lot and always enjoyed it and got great inspiration from it, and so I took uh, I don't know maybe four months off 
and traveled around the world. <laughs> I took a around the world trip, and uh, <laughs> and I got back, and and it was wonderful, but it was also revealing. And I realized that you know the problem was not that I needed time away or I needed to go travel some. It was that really the the structure that Edaw had, and it was hard too because they had tried very hard to. Uh, to, to change their structure to adapt to my interest. Um, you know, they probably, I mean, in retrospect, it was a wonderful thing for them to do, but they elevated me to principal too fast there, uh, kind of outpaced my own level of comfort and, and their ability to adapt the structure mm -hmm. of the business model to a different kind of situation where my interest as a principal is work on projects and not, not market projects and not manage uh, projects and as hard as they tried to recognize that there are different models for principal and ownership role it's not an easy thing to do in a short term as all change is difficult and uh, so I realized you know the problem wasn't me resting it, it was with the structure of uh, framework of the, the, the working model that I was within. And the difficulty was breaking the bonds. Uh, the uh, direction that I went wasn't dictated by any driving desire for me to have my own practice, but it was a default circumstance where I realized that uh, I needed to change from the format or the framework of the structure of where I was working, I didn't want to leave the Washington area and there was nobody else I wanted to work for. Mm -hmm. So I was left with really the only option I Almost had. by default. Yeah, I mean it was. It was those three things kind mm -hmm. of in that order. If there had been somebody else that I enjoyed working for, I would have mm -hmm. probably gone and done that. Uh, I always thought in the back of my mind I might have my own practice, but it was not a driving uh, part of the decision uh, at this point uh, in my life. It was uh, it mm -hmm. ended up being the default decision. And would you say that it's been easy making a living and helping out a few others to make a living off of a small practice in landscape architecture? I mean, I can say it, in a way it's been embarrassingly easy if you are saying it's a financial mm -hmm. uh, model, yeah. Uh, I mean, I did it at a point where I um, was fortunate in that I didn't require a uh, substantial income of my own immediately. Uh, part of it was because I was very, very careful uh, in terms of the expenses associated with the, the, the startup of this practice, and moving into the garage was one of those. Uh, it was a very, very economical um, initiation and uh, and I learned a lot at Edaw about a lot of things and financial management was one of them and, mm -hmm. and uh, maybe to a fault but I don't think so I you know watched early in the practice the the, the, the financial ends of it very carefully although um, as I said, I was in a position where I could forego income for a little while. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a driver, and it never became one. Even though I watched things carefully, I never had to make decisions based on financial issues. And my sense is actually the degree to which it was and has been and continues to be very successful from this point is 
is simply the fact that I never had to make decisions based on uh, financial issues, and that was always one. I mean, that was probably the thing I struggled with the most at Edal mm -hmm. was making the decisions on when you stop work and you know staff and everything that's driven by uh, the financial information. Um, when I set up my practice, it just it went smoothly, and I never had to face. And I'm not sure how I would have dealt with it if I had. It would have been different than I dealt with it at EDAW because of some overriding structure. But in any case, I never had to. And I, I've always felt that the one of the reasons I never had to is because it never was an issue. I focused on the quality of the work we put out, and that promoted itself, which mm -hmm. meant that I spent little or no effort, time, or energy, or money on promotion, uh, and uh, so um, it's been, you know, I shouldn't say embarrassingly easy, because it's not always <laughs> easy, but it's been very, very good. And Edo was probably very sad that you made the decision to leave, because it took one of their important members away at, at the point when you probably would have helped out quite a bit. Yeah, and maybe more than I uh, I knew, or at least more than I remembered, because uh, um, probably the thing I miss most about the separation with Edo, uh, Joe Brown was a great friend and mentor, and uh, I did undercover a letter he wrote recently at that departure, which I know I read when this happened, but I also know that uh, I probably didn't have, either didn't have the perspective or didn't want to have the perspective to, to kind of recognize how uh, much impact it had on all the efforts he had been making to restructure things to, in fact, encourage people like me to become and stay, mm -hmm. uh, retain and stay mm -hmm. as principals or otherwise. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he recognized the importance of it and was making those efforts and, uh, and uh, yes, I think more than I realized it, I know for to him it was a great disappointment. Mm -hmm. in, in our last dispatch with Jim Corner, he commented that the larger firms have a difficulty building their practice because the mid-level staff is very interested in going out and making their own office. What type of advice do you give, will you give to your mid-level colleagues who are interested in breaking off and starting their own practice as you did in 1987? Well, I think that it, it is a driving vision for a lot of people, and I think anybody uh, in that category, I mean, all you can say to them is to do it, do it at the right moment, and, and you know, my belief and recommendations often are not not because I've had extraordinary lucky retention. Uh, so I haven't given this advice to anybody in my own office. I have to a lot of other people who have called me and asked me uh, about it because their knowledge that I did what I did. I encourage them if it's at the right moment. And I think, I mean, like everything, timing has so much to do with it. It's not just the right moment in terms of your own career and capacity and capabilities. That certainly has to be there, but it also, unfortunately, I mean, business does ebb and flow, and you want to do it at a good time and not a bad time. Um, I think you can bridge bridge that, and it's those that that ebb and flow of the economy and its impact on us as a profession practices. 
I think it's easier to bridge as a small practice than it is a big practice. Uh, but still, you got to be cognizant of it, mm -hmm. and you want to make sure that when you do this, it's it's right. Uh, but uh, I encourage people to do it. I haven't had to face it with my own practice yet. And of course, this is a kind of a different question too. The the, the issue. I mean, Edo was certainly recognizing that they, you know, they, one one of the ways, of course, is to offer ownership, mm -hmm. um, and that would be the traditional way, and that means uh, growth uh, and change, and those things are good, and you have to deal with them. But that's one way. But I think for somebody who's driving really to to, to really have their own practice, that's probably the right thing to do. And the other is to to figure out how to elevate mid-level people within the office to ownership positions that satisfy that interest or need. Michael Ferguson is a registered landscape architect with a practice in Alexandria, Virginia, and holds this year's Thomas Jefferson Memorial Foundation Professorship in Architecture at the University of Virginia. You've recently been nominated, or you've recently been named a fellow to the American Society of Landscape Architecture. What does this mean to you, and how does it all happen? Well, how it happens is a, I was going to say a long question, but maybe not. I mean, how it happens is that the local uh, chapters uh, of the ASLA nominate uh, people uh, for uh, fellowship positions, and, and technically and, and procedurally that's the way it happens. And so somebody comes to you and says, so that is with the chapter structure. Uh, that we want to nominate you as a fellow. And then the process is a fairly uh, um, demanding, but time-consuming, yeah, time-consuming. Uh, what it means to me, uh, I have mixed reactions to. I'm, I mean, in one way, uh, I can see it as meaning uh, you have achieved some uh, level of accomplishment in your career that you can start uh, Relaxing and uh, and and start looking at the disengaging mm -hmm. a little bit from it. And does that mean that to me? I mean, I, I hope not. But but uh, it's certainly it's a nice recognition. Mm -hmm. I mean, what you know, what I'd like to say is that that uh, it, it is a nice recognition and uh, and reminder that they need to renew energy and, mm -hmm. uh, and reestablish a kind of commitment to doing good work. Uh, mm -hmm. What it means to me right now, I'm, I'm, I'm not absolutely sure. Now being a fellow, I make the assumption, perhaps falsely, that you know a little bit more about the ASLA than you did before you were a fellow. What does the ASLA do? And maybe better yet, how could the ASLA do it better? Well, I, I'm laughing a little bit because I, I know this is a tough question um, that I don't have a, a good answer for uh, really any uh, dimension or aspect of that question. Uh, I think, uh, I mean, I think the most visible uh, component of the ASLA uh, is uh, the convention and the awards program. Mm -hmm. uh, and I do think the awards program is a good thing uh, as a stimulant to conversation and uh, communication about what we're doing, what is as a profession, what's good, or not that it necessarily 
represents in everyone's contention, con, uh, consensus what's best or even good, but it at least stimulates a conversation, and I think that's extremely good. But I, I also think those are just the most visible things. Probably the embarrassing side of the question is I know that there's a lot of other things going on, but how articulate about it I can be, I'm not so sure. They didn't give you a test? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. They should have. And maybe they did, and maybe I didn't pass that piece of it. But uh, actually, I think the chapter end of it, um, in terms of the kind of grassroots and immediate uh, aspects, uh, are worth mentioning because I do think that's extremely good, extremely good at uh, getting um, a sense of uh, community from individual practitioners and people in public sector. It's an awfully good way to, to if not ensure, at least allow for some interchange and sense of uh, a community uh, within the area that you work that cuts across individual offices and across private and public. And I think that's an extremely good service that it provides. Uh, I mean, I'm a little bit embarrassed because the fact is I, I have not been a great contributor to, uh, and I know an awful lot of people who have uh, put, put uh, great energy and effort into uh, issues of service with the uh, society, and I have great admiration for them and a little bit of embarrassment. Uh, in my lack of that. I also think, although I, this is maybe speculative more than knowledgeable, I, it, it may be one of the, not best, but one of the real services they provide is local to Washington is, is in the political realm of watching and keeping us aware of broader political and legislative things that are essential to uh, or important to, to, to where our profession goes as, as a whole. In fact, I noticed, you know, when you did the uh, intro here, you noted that I was a registered landscape architect. And it, you know, it is kind of funny. I'm, you know, I do think registration is important. And I mm -hmm. think one of the great things ASLA does is push for that uh, nationally. And it's not in enough places. You know, I don't see it as important in terms of establishing any level of well, maybe maybe I shouldn't say that. Maybe I do, and establishing some level of professionalism. I think it is important. I think it's extremely important in the degree to which it ensures that landscape architects get involved in public work, uh, uh, and that's maybe. A, I mean, that's one aspect of their work that I think mm -hmm. is a great service mm -hmm. that we all benefit from. Mm -hmm. To switch from public public work to private work. You've recently developed a very strong relationship with Cohn Peterson Fox on a number of projects, uh, one in particular, the Gannett USA, a park for the Gannett USA headquarters. What type of role do you see yourself taking in this collaboration, which perhaps is a long-term one? There's a specific answer with uh, with Cohn Peterson Fox, KPF, and then there's a broader answer uh, that I might think about as I talk a little bit about collaboration. Uh, the oddity is with KPF. Yes, we that that was I think an extraordinarily successful example of collaboration and uh, particularly a difficult testing one because we had never done any work with KPF when we started that project. It was a big project on a fast pace, and that's always a difficult test of collaboration when you don't really know what to expect from the mutual parties. Um, 
it was extraordinarily successful and, and I know they feel the same because they call us often to do uh, other projects. Um, when do they call you? What point in the uh, process? Um, at different points, but as often as not uh, at the origins mm -hmm. of a project, uh, not in every case, but but I do know that, uh, and it is you know, one of the fundamental precepts of a good collaboration, they call us because they are very interested in getting our input and perspective on things at a point when it can affect the, the basic vision of the mm -hmm. place. So they don't always call us, but I don't discourage that. Uh, you know, I, I, I trust them to try to get us involved at the moment when it's important and not any more than that because the real problem is our inability to respond to their call. The, the fact that I have and I will continue to to, to sustain a small office, uh, whatever you define that, uh, I still call it small at 10 for sure. Mm -hmm. But the problem is work volume in a small office, the ability to flex, stretch uh, with flows in demand is, is not extraordinary. There's just a certain amount of stretch you can do. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we still, uh, unfortunately, have to turn down an awful lot of work. And it's only been one instance in quite a few uh, opportunities that we've been able to uh, engage with them again, simply because typically their projects are big and typically our workload is high. Mm -hmm. And our ability to take on a big project um, uh, is a little bit too serendipitous to hitting at the, just the right window. Um, so while I know they're very anxious as I am, I'd love to do another project with them. It hasn't happened because uh, the scale of their projects and the volume of our workload. Most of our uh, work in the past, and that's one of the changes we're undergoing now, um, the vast majority in the past has been collaborative, uh, most of that with architects and most of that with architects that we have worked with repeatedly and developed uh, an ongoing relationship where uh, both, it's, you know, it's a successful one, I think, on all, in everybody's view, um, uh, but also one that, um, that uh, is a kind of feedback mm -hmm. thing where uh, part of our problem is a problem but also a wonderful situation is that the, the, the people we work with are feeding us so uh, regularly that, that windows don't open very often to allow us to, to uh, engage in something mm -hmm. else. In these collaborations on landscape projects with KPF or others, do you feel a burden to invent? Invent in terms of uh, brand of new models or the type aesthetic? of work that the type of landscape that you add to the project, or the type of way that mm -hmm. the landscape. Um, mitigates or mediates with yeah. with the project. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a good question because um, 
Uh, also, uh, clearly in that is, is the recognition that uh, another problem with the kind of constant feeding with a limited uh, and reoccurring group that we may work with, it doesn't interject uh, the kind of energy that comes because yes, in our collaborations, you know, we will typically you know, say we try to blur the distinction between disciplines instead of defining it as a crisp line that we encourage the architects to be thinking about the landscape mm -hmm. and we insist on thinking about the architecture a little bit all with the idea that that uh, the finished product uh, ought to feel like the work of one hand really but 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 be enriched by uh, perspectives and different interests and expertise but uh, really encouraging that overlap very much so yes probably the 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 the, 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 the reoccurring work with although I mean some of these architects really become mentors for me as well, but but one of the pleasures of the, the first project with KPF was was a different formal vocabulary. And and what we are trying to do is marry typically, uh, you know, issues associated with site, whether they're cultural or natural, those kinds of systems, to find a way to, um, uh, to dovetail those with the issues of the building, whether it's the building reaching out in the landscape or simply defining a hard line between them. It is looking hard at the formal and structural uh, aspects of a building to see how it should inform the landscape. Uh, and so when we work with an architect who's coming in with a new perspective, uh, it does probably prompt us to a level of invention that, that, that we may lose a little bit in the work with uh, reoccurring, the reoccurring work with, with the same architect. But I would add that you know, we, we do a lot of work with Peter Bolin, and, uh, who has a practice in Pennsylvania, but now quite a bit of number of offices on the West Coast as well. and. Peter uh, is as good in his instincts about landscape as any architect mm -hmm. I've worked with, and I actually have learned an awful lot about landscape uh, through Peter, as, as mm -hmm. well as on ways about making things. Mm -hmm. he, he is an extraordinary craftsman uh, as well as a thinker. And uh, so, um, so I can say that, that some of these architects function as mentors for me, and I continue to learn from them as we work more with them. How do you see your practice evolving in the years to come? Well, it's probably the hardest question, and I'd, I'd, I'd be brief, but there's, there's certainly no easy, quick answer. What I do know, the, the, the practice does need to change. and it, and initiated by this event that I mentioned earlier with the advent of triplets. Uh, that's changed my attitude towards work. Uh, it's changed the physical form as well as location uh, of the office. I mean, physical form, size, and location. And all those things require significant adjustments to the way we work. And those adjustments are happening now, but not necessarily with as much guidance as they ought to, although that's not unusual for the way I work. Uh, I do typically let things find a form as often as I give them form, but the office is bigger. Um, 
my interest uh, is not necessarily my, my first interest is not necessarily work anymore. Um, I am interested in spending more time at home with family. Uh, so whereas my driving energy and time probably was uh, kind of central source of the energy and uh, and focus of the office, I see that changing. Mm -hmm. uh, I see the projects we're doing, we still do a lot of collaborative work, but another significant change, and that work always put us in a support position, or almost always, which I loved because it meant we weren't managing projects or big teams as much, mm -hmm. we were a part of them. It meant that we could do more work and larger projects with a smaller staff, and it was one of the enabling things to keeping the office small, but still doing a very broad range of projects, including larger ones. Now we find ourselves prime on, not sure what the percentage of our work is now, but dramatic compared to just four years ago. And from a situation where almost everything we did was two-tier, it was me working with one, maybe two people in the office, that's how all the projects got accomplished. Now, uh, the majority of the projects are probably three-tier, and it means that there is a different way that things get done. My involvement in the project is different, and all those things are evolving fast, and uh, exactly where they go, I don't know, but I do know that the office is going to change. Well, best of luck and your changes to come, and thank you so much for joining us on on telegrams. Mm, thanks, and my pleasure. Uh, but I should say too, I know, I believe, and I know it was just a slip when you uh, did the original introduction, you mentioned uh, Michael Ferguson Architects, and uh, I do want to clear up, I do have an architectural background, and that has had a lot to do with what I've done and do, but uh, I, I, I practice as a landscape architect solely. <laughs> okay, make sure that's clear. Well, thank you, Michael. It's been great to have you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for the sixth dispatch of Terragrams. To find out more about Terragrams and sign up for our next deliveries, please visit our website at www.terragrams.com or subscribe to us using iTunes. Terragrams is made possible with the help of the School of Architecture and the Robertson Media Lab at the University of Virginia. Find out more about their programs at www.virginia.edu. And finally, special thanks, as always, to the books for their wonderful and very cool music. You can expose yourself to the books at www.thebooks.com. I'm Craig Verzone, and this concludes the sixth delivery of Paragraphs.